Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumphy, filling in by invitation for my sister and comrade, the fabulous host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. We live in a global world. We are all interconnected. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now, for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a federal law Tuesday that would ban abortions nationwide after 15 weeks of pregnancy, except in cases of rape, incest, or danger to the physical health of the pregnant patient. Eileen Alfandari has more. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham was flanked by national anti-abortion leaders as he introduced a bill that would bar the procedure nationwide after 15 weeks of pregnancy. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. The stance marks a reversal for Graham, who had said in June that he supported leaving the issue up to the states to decide. Meantime, some Republican congressional candidates have scrubbed mention of abortion from their campaign websites, fearing that anger over the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade will help their Democratic opponents. Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was quick to denounce Graham's legislation and to remind voters about what's at stake at the polls this November. Proposals like the one today send a clear message from MAGA Republicans to women across the country. Your body, our choice. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. West Virginia's legislature passed a sweeping abortion ban with few exceptions Tuesday, approving a bill that several Republicans said they hope will make it impossible for the state's only abortion clinic to continue to offer the procedure. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky's visiting recently reclaimed areas in the Kharkiv region. He says soldiers have claimed 3,000 square miles of territory from invading Russian soldiers. Forces left the war-scarred area last week as Kiev soldiers pressed a stunning advance that's reclaimed large swaths of territory in the country's northeast, though some areas are reportedly littered with mines and infrastructure damage. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen wants to cap the revenue of electricity producers that are making extraordinary profits because of the effect of the war in Ukraine and climate change. These companies are making revenues they never accounted for, they never even dreamt of. And don't get me wrong, in our social market economy, profits are okay, they are good. But in these times... It is wrong to receive extraordinary record revenues and profits benefiting from war and on the back of our consumers. In these times, 
Profits must be shared and channeled to those who need it most. As the bloc supports Ukraine, Russia's reduced or cut off natural gas to 13 member nations, surging gas and electricity prices that are expected to go higher as demand peaks during the cold winter months. As economic numbers showed continued inflation in the U.S., another possible round of interest hikes is looming. President Joe Biden hailed passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Christopher Martinez reports. Progress does come and it's coming now. The Inflation Reduction Act includes some of President Joe Biden's top priorities. It's the most significant climate legislation ever passed, with nearly $370 billion to address climate change and environmental justice issues. It cuts health care costs by, among other things, capping prescription drug costs for seniors on Medicare. It cuts the deficit and closes some corporate tax loopholes. It all passed without a single Republican vote in the House or Senate. As supporters celebrated at the White House, Republican Senate leaders blasted the new law at a news conference. Republican John Thune of South Dakota is the Senate minority whip. They may be taking a victory lap at the White House, but I can tell you one thing, the American people are not. He and the other Republicans point to newly released Labor Department data that shows the consumer price index rising by a tenth of a percentage point in August compared to July. Democrats, on the other hand, are trying to focus on issues like abortion rights and legislative accomplishments like the new Inflation Reduction Act. President Biden appears to be expecting Republican pushback on the new law. What's their platform when you ask them? You hear the Republican leader saying, undo everything we've done. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA. I'm Christopher Martinez. The United Nations says weather disasters are costing $200 million a day and looming irreversible climate catastrophe shows the world is heading in the wrong direction. UN Chief Antonio Guterres cited the floods in Pakistan, heat waves in Europe, droughts in places like China, the Horn of Africa and the U.S. as he called for an end to fossil fuel consumption. The current fossil fuel free-for-all must end now. It is a recipe for permanent climate chaos and suffering. Today, I urge leaders to heed the facts of this alarming report. We must unite behind the science. We must turn pledges into action now. And Armenia and Azerbaijan are accusing each other of new rounds of shelling as hostilities reignited between the two longtime adversaries, killing some 100 troops in all on both sides Tuesday. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And that was the news headlines. According to the White House, there have been 3.6 million official eviction filings so far in 2022. We should expect the numbers of eviction filings to increase, given that data from the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey released in 2021 found approximately 4.2 million adults report being at risk of eviction or foreclosure, and that was in July and August. The data indicated that those facing eviction are significantly more likely to be Black, Indigenous, Latinx, or other people of color. An analysis by PolicyLink indicates that about 900,000 households in California are behind on rent with an average of $4,600 in rental arrears. I'm pleased to be joined by Pete White, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network, also known as LA Can, to dig into this further. 
Pete White is the founder and co-executive director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network, a grassroots organization working to ensure the human right of housing, health, and security are upheld in Los Angeles. Pete has been a community organizer in Los Angeles communities since 1992 and has educated and organized thousands of low-income people on a multitude of issues and campaigns. A lifetime resident of South Central Los Angeles, he is committed to fight for a Los Angeles that does not tolerate racial injustice, promotes an equitable distribution of resources, and includes everyone. Pete believes that organizing and leadership development are essential tools needed to achieve social change and racial justice. He serves on a variety of boards and advisory committees related to homelessness, organizing, and grassroots funding. He's also my comrade. Good morning, Pete. Uh, top of the morning. So happy to be here on Sojourner Truth and happy to be here with you, Nana. Thank you so very much for joining us. So we are here, Pete. They've declared the pandemic over, you know. Um, we're on the verge of this election. Some would say that they've been holding on in terms of what they're doing with these rent moratoriums and eviction moratoriums until this election is over. And those who watch the time and review the records are telling us that we're on the cusp of mass evictions across this country, right on the other side of these elections. You know, lose, win or draw, whoever gets in there. What do you see us facing nationally when it comes to homelessness and why? Right, right. Um, so once again, thank you for having me this morning. And thank you for lifting this, this, this very important conversation uh, and a conversation that I feel like has been swept under the rug for the last couple of years. We've been attempting to ring the bell on what we've seen as the eviction tsunami again for like the last 18 months. Um, so undoubtedly um, in Los Angeles County. So there, there's been a couple of, there's been a, a, a number of studies uh, in LA County um, that speaks to the number of folks who are gonna be largely at risk when all of the uh, eviction moratoriums or protections are lifted. The number at a low um, has been 360,000 families. And so you're looking at about 700,000 individuals and then to a high of about 650,000 uh, families. Um, we know for certain, uh, because the LA Community Action Network, we ran, we run a rent assistance clinic, we run a tenant's right legal clinic. We know from the, from the people who are showing up at our doors, while folks are talking about averages of $4,000 uh, in back rent being owed, we're seeing folks $16,000, $20,000, $30,000. And what we have to remember is that the protections did not, none of the protections forgave rent, right? It just pushed your due date on this rent back. And so when you think about the, the high cost of housing and the low wages paid in a city like Los Angeles, you know the lion's share of those folks, I would say in the high 90s, are going to be unable to uh, pay that back rent. I think the thing that's really, uh, that people also have to think about when we talk about this eviction tsunami 
is when we look at the corporate landlords in a place like South Central Los Angeles, when you think about South Central Los Angeles, like 45, 50% of the landlords are corporate players. These are folks who have been holding on for two years, particularly in the uh, in the the more protected uh, protected housing stock that's protected by our rent stabilization ordinance. They've been holding on for two years in the hopes that people can't pay that rent back, so they can increase those rents, and then they could bring in the lighter shades of white into our community. And so. This becomes the, the pandemic and, uh, and these raises or the lifting of protections becomes another sort of Hurricane Katrina type scenario where it aids in the gentrification of our communities. And so we're in trouble. Like when people think about the Great Depression era and they think about the Hoovervilles, the shacks, the informal settlements, Without immediate protection, without, uh, and you know, we can talk about that is, but without immediate protection to stop the inflow uh, into houselessness, Los Angeles is going to see the numbers of informal settlements increase starting in 2023 through 2024. I'm thinking about you know, just the people that we know, and I'm, you know, this audience is a national audience. There's folks that are in all, you know, kinds of states and big cities and in rural areas. And everyone is talking about the same thing. Everyone is talking about rent is still going up in spite of the pandemic, in spite of what we know is happening with the economy in this country um, and what people are able to pull out of their pocket People are really questioning whether or not they're going to be able to stay another month. People are being told your rent is going up $1,000 just like that in the next 30 to 60 days. And there's been an uproar, as you point out, Pete, um, not just in Los Angeles, but all across the country, again, rural or urban, about what is happening with people's housing insecurity and, you know, it seems that elected government agencies have been you know, talking about helping in some kinds of ways people who are already unhoused, as well as trying to protect those who are on the brink of homelessness. They've had two and a half years to prepare and figure it out. And so just, again, looking at Los Angeles, because I know that's where you're focused, but this is a national story and has national implications. What have elected and government agencies been doing for this past two and a half years? And what is their plan um, as far as you understand it? And so, so another great question. Thank you, Nana. Um, our government, and this is, you are, as you say, this is a national crisis. This is a national problem, right? Um, and no one's looking at it. And so when we think about governments nationally, instead of figuring out ways to bring down the cost of building housing, instead of figuring out ways to convert government-owned property or even government-owned hands uh, property, putting it back in the hands of the public who owns that property, instead of doing this, we continue or we or they continue um, to sit back and allow the runaway rents to increase. Because I think the other thing that we have to remember um, is that we're also in this, um, in this cycle, and you know it's a 20-year cycle now, 
of attempting to bring back the folks from the suburbs who fled during white flight. And so we are in a period of remaking cities, right? And so while we're in this period, most of what the government is doing is catering to those upper income earners, right? Who happen to be non-Black people, right? Uh, Non-Brown people. And so while they're doing this, this is there is very little attention paid to housing that's affordable to those of us who are holding these cities together, right? Um, when we think about what's needed, we 100% need a housing as a human rights Marshall Plan. It's interesting when we think about uh, the development of social housing or public housing in this country, right? It was it was developed after World War II, right? Uh, white soldiers coming back. They needed a place to stay. Um, they needed that first place to stay until, you know, that first single home uh, was, uh, was developed. And, you know, we know the story, redlining, segregation. Those options were only left open for some. Well, we need that same focus in the communities in which we stand and sit and live and worship now to keep everyone there. I think the stat that uh, people need to hear is that in Los Angeles, there are two, 207 people exit houselessness on a daily basis. Now, I wish I could say that was because we had such a great uh, structure or government that did that, but more than half of those folks uh, leave houselessness on their own, right? They find another job to add to that, those three jobs that it takes um, to, to uh, afford rent in Los Angeles, right? They find a roommate or two or three, right, that helps them uh, uh, have the rent. But what no one else talks about is that there are 227 people who enter houselessness every day in Los Angeles because there is no real plan. And so what we've seen, we've seen celebrations nationally from municipalities, from cities and counties because they were living high on the hog, if you will, from resources pouring in from the federal government and state governments, right? This wasn't general fund dollars. This wasn't a reprioritization of our local dollars. This was dollars coming in from elsewhere. And when we think about the drying up of protections, we have to think about how we reprioritize our uh, local resources, really looking at how we fund the police, really looking at how we fund certain services um, that could be held in community and funding them in the same ways. You know, you meant you said the word the words public housing. And it's like no one talks about public housing. You know what I mean? It's like it's not I don't know. Somehow public housing got some kind of a bad name. And thinking about even how places like Jordan Downs and other public housing in Los Angeles itself is being converted into that weird, you know, we're going to have some uh, stores on the bottom and some housing on the top. And what happened to public housing? So let me say this. I mean. You, you know what, Nana, you and I, we can be on this, on this uh, conversation all day. Well, let me just say this. When we think about public housing, let's just call it social housing. That's what they call, this is what they called, this is what they call that type of housing across the globe. And I've seen it, right? I've seen it in Sweden. I've seen it in London. I've seen it in Barcelona. It is beautiful housing 
Why is it beautiful housing? Because the government understands that there is a need to have housing that's affordable across the spectrum and that housing needs to be livable and that housing needs to be decent and they invest in it, right? And so when we think about, and they invest in the communities in which it is held. And so when we think about Jordan Downs and we think about the Nickersons and, and all of the, the various uh, social housing developments in Los Angeles, there's one feature that we have to remember. We oftentimes talk about, well, those, those units or those developments are, you know, in these communities and they're, they're downtrodden. The reality is, is that uh, 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 organized abandonment has also been happening in those communities for 50 years, right? And so what we're talking about, they attempt to make us believe that the developments are an island within an oasis. But in realities, these are in black and brown communities where disinvestment has been happening for 50 years. And so when we, if we want to, if and we must, we must save those units, we must save the communities in which they're in, we must upgrade them, and we must make sure that everyone who is there and their families are not displaced. Because when we displace someone from any form of housing in Los Angeles or anywhere else, we can say Los Angeles and Cleveland and, and New York and, and, and the Mission District in San Francisco, once people are displaced, they are effectively banished because there is no other type of housing that is affordable there for them. And so what we're talking about is this process of banishment, not displacement, because displacement suggests that when you leave that house, you got somewhere else to go. But if you leave a unit in Los Angeles now that you are struggling to stay in, if you leave today, you will be houseless tomorrow. And that story is a story that tracks across this country. And I think the country is waking up, but I think we have to wake up a whole lot sooner. And, you know, I'm shouting out uh, housing organizers and poor people organizers and others across this country to let's come together and figure out what our Marshall Plan looks like and what does moving power feel like. I love that. I'm about to, I, I don't forget to invite me to that meeting, Pete. I'll be upset. Ah, <laughs> uh, you already there. You know it. Absolutely, excellent, excellent, excellent. We'll hold you to that. Uh, and, and just looking because I really and then thank you so much for coming on, because we know that Los Angeles is the epicenter of the crisis of housing, of homelessness uh, in this country. And we know that there have been battles that have been waging, as you've indicated, you know, these aren't new battles, but certainly L.A. is like the testing ground, just as it is with policing of, you know, policies to try out. And we've had the experiences and you've been there in the from the trenches to the mountaintop, you know, and all all the spaces in between. What lessons do we in Los Angeles have to share with the rest of the country and really the world? Because this is not, again, an issue that's just here, you know, folks, you know, from Brazil to back home. Right. Um, everyone is dealing with this issue of housing and how we address it. What lessons do we have to share about what works and what doesn't work? Because I think there's a lot of myths about what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, interested in you helping to be the myth buster. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, my, my short answer is like, don't let your lion eyes uh, fool you. That would be my first answer. 
But I think the important thing in a place like Los Angeles, right? So Los Angeles is known for its powerful organizing, right? And so we have been great at organizing and developing policies. And so if someone from the outside looks in, Los Angeles looks really, really progressive, right? On all of these issues, on, on, on housing and, and on jobs and on wages, like we look really progressive from the outside, right? Because we've fought these battles, we've waged these battles, we've actually exported the models of the battles to different places. Where we have fallen short, uh, however, is the enactment of those policies, right? Is the actual rolling out of the policy. So we're, we've been great up to the press conference, but the actual work, uh, and this is, you know, this is, this is because we're on KPFK, this is also for KPFK listeners, you have to support implementation as aggressively as you, uh, as you wage or support the campaign to get the thing done, right? And so, We've been, you know, we've been hit by, we've been struck by, if I'm, if I'm Michael Jackson in the moment, we by smooth criminals, right? And so we have local elected officials who will lift our victories during seasons like this, during campaign seasons like this, and, and sort of um, uh, uh, rest in the laurels of the work that Angelinos have put in to hold this thing together. And so Implementation, implementation, implementation is really important. The other thing that we, we really have to look at and think about uh, is how we change the structure, the nature of our political infrastructure, right? And what I mean by that, oftentimes our wins are connected to elected officials. You know, we do all the hard work, we get them where we want them, and then they're out of office, right? And then all of the wins or all of the all of the energy towards that thing that we've won has gone, right? And so we we gotta think about how in our constitutions, right? Or or whatever the equivalent in your local municipality is, is how we're putting numbers that in the same way establish the numbers of police that you're gonna have in your community establishes the numbers of housing units you must develop, establishes the ways in which general fund dollars must be spent, right? Because in that way, this, this infrastructure outlives whoever that person is um, that you pushed hard to actually gain a little bit um, in this system, in this oppressive system, if that makes sense. And so we have to move beyond these individuals and we have to move beyond the simple press conferences. And we just gotta, we gotta organize bigger. We gotta go big, go home. We gotta, we gotta understand, and we've been talking about this a lot, and I think we're getting better at this, is that these aren't siloed conversations. That a family that's struggling um, to eat is also a family that's struggling uh, with housing, that's struggling with a job, right? That's struggling uh, with an unhealthy, uh, environmentally sound community, right? And so we've got to bring all of these things together in a way that makes sense, that applies the pressure to ensure everyone's housed from LA to the Bay and all the way to the South and on the East Coast. All right, folks, we've got our orders. We know what it is that we need to do. Thank you so very much, Pete, for
for sharing, for coming on, for talking with us. How do folks connect with you and LA Can if they want to engage this critical work? If they're in another part of the country and they want to get some, you know, chop it up, get some ideas, share some ideas, how do they get with you? Man, we're wide open. So hit us up uh, at www.cangress, that's C-A-N-G-R-E-S-S dot O-R-G. Again, cangress.org, leave your hookup. You can also find us on all social channels, LA Community Action Network. We are, we are there for you. We are looking forward to, uh, to joining hands across the country. Um, and, you know, lastly, we also were developing a model of housing called Ecohoods that walks us away from $800,000 per unit of housing in Los Angeles down closer to 75. And so we're looking to have those conversations. There are solutions. The community always has them. Let's join hands, y'all. Let's organize. And thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Pete White, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network. You know, there is a woman who is a BLM protester or was arrested in June of 2020 who is pregnant and has been sentenced with the understanding that she is to give birth at the end of this year to four years in prison. Let's go to the clip. Taking a look around the Midlands now as a pregnant black activist will have her prison sentence reconsidered as she nears her due date. 34-year-old Brittany Martin was found guilty in spring of breaching the peace in a high and aggravated manner over comments she made to police during a Black Lives Matter protest in Sumter. Well, she currently is serving four years in prison, but advocates with Black Lives Matter, or Black Voters Matter, I should say, have been circulating a petition calling for her release. Civil rights attorney Bakari Sellers plans to tell a judge on September 12th that the punishment is unjust. That is Brittany Martin. Brittany Martin is the name of the woman who has been sentenced to four years in prison, a pregnant Black woman whose brother was killed by the police in 2016. Her brother-in-law, excuse me, shot 19 times by Sumter police. And this is in South Carolina and brought that, brought her brother's energy, her brother's spirit, her brother's memory. Uh, when we all were pouring into the streets in 2020, um, she is literally has been convicted of the verbal um, uh, comparison to reckless eyeballing that is been used so many times against black people and now finds herself facing four years in prison. We have so much work yet to do and we must do it. We'll talk more about this after this station break. Don't go anywhere. The conquering lion shall break every chain. Give him the victory again and again. Check out other stories and supplemental material on so true radio.org.
Very, very grateful to be joined now by Christina Griffin and Natasha Brown to talk about power, building power, and connecting that with our civic engagement as we head into these 2022 elections. Again, this is not a jump feed. Today's guest host of Sojourner Truth. And that clip that you heard previously was from WLTX on the unjust and heartrending four-year sentence of Brittany Martin, a Black Lives Matter protester arrested in South Carolina in June of 2020 for making officers feel uncomfortable with her words, essentially. Her attorney, Bakari Sellers, will be going before the judge to ask for a reduced sentence. And this is the type of pushback that we need to engage in. And people are tired. People are exhausted after four years of the other guy and all that's happened with the pandemic and other uh, atrocities that people have had to deal with over these past two years. Now, it was a very memorable 2020 election year, particularly for grassroots organizers and activists across the country who usually stayed away from electoral politics and voter engagement. But 2020 was an all-hands-on-deck election, with even skeptics and naysayers putting in work to oust what many saw as an existential threat to our most vulnerable and marginalized community members. As per all elections, lots of promises were made, not so many kept, particularly on issues most impactful to Black, Indigenous, immigrant, LGBTQ, and young people leaving many disillusioned with the entire process. Yet, the national calls for communities to get and stay engaged continue. And so again, pleased to be joined today by Christina Griffin and Natasha Brown of the California Black Power Network to discuss how they keep the fire burning for people-powered change. Christina Griffin-Jones is CBPN's organizing and training manager, where she works with Black folks who care deeply about the communities they represent and connects them with the tools they need. Christina's past experience includes working alongside grass stops, grassroots, social justice, and labor organizations. Her visions for Black California is that we find each other, see each other, honor each other, and continue to work alongside each other to make sure our stories are told and our contributions and rest are honored. A fun fact about Christina is that she is a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, so don't mess with her, and represented the United States at the 2022 World Games in women's middleweight sumo wrestling. Natasha Brown is CBPN's organizing coordinator, where she coordinates with coalition members and provides support around training and capacity building as part of the organizing and training team. She's extremely happy and grateful to have found a home with the California Black Power Network, fighting for the advancement of California's Black communities. Prior to joining the network, Natasha organized in communities of Los Angeles and Orange County, contributing to the flip of California Congressional District 25, 39, and 45 in 2018. Most recently, she worked as communications coordinator on the Bernie Sanders campaign. She loves to hike, play soccer, and spend time with family. Greetings to the both of you. Hey, Nana. 
Thank you for having us on. So let's start first, just briefly um, giving folks a sense of who is the California Black Power Network and you know what is the work that you do? Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you so much for having us on. Christine and I are both very excited to be here um, to talk about the work that we do in the network. Um, so the California Black Power Network, it's a united ecosystem of Black grassroots organizations you know, all working together to change the lived conditions of Black Californians uh, by dismantling systemic and black, anti-Black racism. Um, so there's kind of four buckets uh, of work that we work in, in and, and we want to protect and build uh, Black political power through this work. So those buckets are, you know, policy development, uh, civic participation and engagement, uh, organizing, direct action, and uplifting Black culture and narrative. Um, and we're working to, you know, working within all of these buckets to improve the living conditions of Black Californians, um, you know, and, and lifting specifically in, in the, the different buckets and the areas, work areas that we are in, you know, emphasizing that grassroots uh, organizing of Black communities. Um, our current coalition holds 13, uh, or excuse me, covers 13 counties across uh, six regions of the state. Uh, so, so we are very intentional with um, our partners. We have 30 plus partners. Um, the work that we do is very coordinated um, and at scale across, across the state. So really just working together, uh, again, to dismantle systemic and anti-Black racism and, and really make improvements um, in the living conditions of, of Black Californians. And so as we look forward um, to these 2022 elections and understanding organizing is not election by election. However, we got these elections coming up um, and the nationally, you know, as well, of course, as here in California, we hear a lot of concern about whether people are going to show up to the polls, whether people are going to continue to engage with electeds um, even after these elections happen. How much of this talk about voter apathy, about civic apathy is real? And how much of it is hype or, you know, really like some Debbie Downer type stuff? Thank you, Nana. You lifted up earlier, right? Black folks have just been through so much. We're, we're all fatigued, right? And I think that that connection to like that voter apathy, it really comes from being tired of this parachute-like way of traditional voter engagement, which is basically like a, a random person, you don't know coming to knock on your door one time a year or or during the time of elections promising this microwave like change and then saying if you vote you know uh, everything will be better it'll be changed and um and then you voting and you not being able to see that change in our network the strategy we use we we don't use traditional voter engagement we use something called integrated voter engagement and integrated voter engagement at its like heart and like at its at its core is that the folks who are most deeply impacted by the issues, those are the folks where the solutions lie, right? And that's about engaging folks year round to build relationships, to educate folks on issues and motivate them to get involved. And you know, too, like it's a marathon, really inoculating folks and getting folks ready for the fight ahead and letting folks know, you know, they're 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 not alone in 
doing that. Integrative voter engagement, right? It also works to involve people, like I said, beyond voting in campaigns. It's involving folks in community events and other forms of organizing in their community. And it's also led, right, by local community-based orgs, like our network members that have deep roots in their community. One of the most exciting parts of it, right, it develops grassroots leaders who help lead the organizing so that when you're at the door, you know, being talked to, you're being talked to by a person. One, it's not your first time seeing them. And it's a, it's a person that's having a conversation with you that resonates with you, that excites you, right? And also that they're talking about something that you care about. We were able to see this so much in our conversations around reparations, you know, conversations being had, right, by Black folks who care about reparation, wanted to know more about reparation, but also, like these black folks already have relationships with the people they were talking to with the doors because it's not the first time they're seeing that community organization. Integrated voter engagement is one of the core parts of our organizing strategy and ongoing work and really is a way that infuses excitement, hope and also appreciation for the process for change. Thank you so much for that, Christina. And it's like talking to you, talking to Natasha um, I, I, you know, we're going to give people the opportunity to see how to hook up with you on social media, but even being in meetings with you all, you know, talking about what we're going to do next, um, hearing what you're saying with other groups, talking with other groups that, that are part of the network, um, just about that excitement, about that energy. And we don't see that in you know, a lot of places across the country. Clearly, there are folks everywhere that are doing it, right? And are getting people excited and getting people moving because as organizers, we gonna do that. Um, but there is just people feeling so much heartbreak that it's hard for them to even lean in to the kinds of um, values, to the kinds of ideas, the dreams that allow them to talk to folks in a way that gets that excitement when they're going to the doors or as they're engaging people in social media. How are you all doing it? I, mean, I wanted you on here because I was like, hey, we got to share some breath of friends. What is it? A, a dose of, of uh, uh, fresh air um, out here to folks to really get some excitement in the in the work that they're doing. How are you getting that excitement? What are the values that you're leaning into in order to get our folks to push packs their apathy or disappointment and lean into and push into um, doing the work? Absolutely. And I really think that in creating excitement around a lot of our organizing work and getting folks to really be civically engaged. And I think by leaning into our values, that's how we're creating that excitement, right? In addition to what Christina lifted about integrated voter engagement, leaning into our values is so, so important. And we're seeing excitement around that because we are lifting being unapologetically Black in all spaces, right? We're embracing and celebrating all Black cultures. We're courageous in lifting the experiences, the challenges, the oppression, and the specific needs of the Black community when they differ from POC-oppressed communities. So just really leaning into our values as the network is, is creating excitement for the Black communities that we engage. 
and and part of that energizing as well is our network is, is our partners you know they are amazing and and the work that they do is great they all each kind of have their own bases and and we're able to really speak to a number of the issues affecting black communities in depth because of our coalition they're so deeply involved also impacted by these by their issues so whether it be you know housing black infant and maternal health education healthcare and more you know we're able to speak effectively to these issues because of the folks in our coalition and the organizations that are, are really leading the work in the field and on the ground. So huge shout out to our partners in the work that they're doing and really helping us, you know, live out and lift our values to create that energy and to create that excitement. Also huge shout out to Lene Norwood and Associates who really helped us be intentional about our messaging, about our branding, about being able to lift Black joy and center Black joy in a lot of the work that we do, you know, centering Black community and culture. So just all of that together has just really been the perfect recipe to create energy and excitement, really getting folks wanting to be involved and to stay involved with the network and the work that we do. So all very, very exciting, exciting work. And we're, we're really happy that we're seeing folks you know, kind of a resurgence of excitement and just wanting to be connected to the network and and the work that we're doing. If you could please let folks know, how do they get in touch with you, get some of this excitement that you're talking about? Natasha talking about the excitement, right? It reminds me so much of the opportunities uh, I've been able to share space with with you and 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 you know with, with P on some of the the protests and stuff. And thinking a lot about you know even in the times of uh, the greatest sadness, right? We were always out there and encouraging and exciting one another. You know, definitely holding Brittany Martin in my heart right now, and that you know she's she's inside and that her folks are all outside really turning up for her and holding it down with 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 snacks and tears and affirmations and chants and that really being so deeply a part of like the black tradition absolutely thank you for lifting that up and making those connections christina how do folks reach you how do folks reach the california black power network folks can connect with us on our website blackpowernetwork.org please opt in to our newsletter to you know stay updated on our latest happenings we are also on social media on facebook we're the ca black power network on instagram and twitter we are BLK Power Network, Black Power Network. We should be on TikTok soon as well. Have a wonderful rest of your day, y'all. Thank you so very much for joining me. Bye. Thank you, Nana. Thank you. If you're on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle at So True Radio. Please to welcome Onyema Obikia to Sojourner Truth. Onyema is a policy analyst for Black Women for Wellness and a sister organization, Black Women for Wellness Action Project. She began her work in reproductive justice as program coordinator for Black Women for Wellness's Get Smart Before You Get Sexy program, the comprehensive sex and sexuality education program of the organization's reproductive justice-focused project, Sisters in Control. Since then, she has continued her work in RJ in varying capacities and currently works on behalf of Black Women for Wellness Action Project, 
as well as Black Women for Wellness to advance intersectional transformative legislation that seeks to secure the health and well-being of Black women and girls throughout California. Anyama holds a Juris Doctorate from Northeastern University School of Law and Master of Public Health from Tufts University School of Medicine. She is committed to contributing to the global realization of reproductive justice by leveraging her training and experience in the field. Greetings, thank you for joining us. Greetings, greetings, Nana. Thank you so very much for having me and Black Women for Wellness uh, and Black Women for Wellness Action Project on the show. We are delighted uh, to join you in conversation today. Thank you. My father's gonna want to adopt you. You went to medical school and law school. <laughs> Well, I didn't go to medical school. I, the the MPH program was housed in the medical school, so that's it. So it's a, it's a, it's a little like a, a yeah. It's it's I'm kind of lying on there. I mean, well, I'm not lying. It's just that that's the school that the degree came from. But certainly, certainly go to medical school. That yeah, no. So sorry, Dad. I, okay, I, Daddy, yeah. keep this daughters. Okay. <laughs> so. We often talk about the single issue voter, right? Mm -hmm. On the right, who like votes their stock shares or they're voting their conservative religious beliefs or their racism. Um, and we don't hear as much about the single issue voter on the left. Mm -hmm. You are in the trenches. Black Women for Wellness is in the trenches. There's a lot of talk nationally, let's say in the punditry world, that people are gonna come out and they're gonna just vote Dobbs and Roe. They're just mm -hmm. going to vote the single issue of abortion, um, whether it be liberals, mods, or progressives. Mm -hmm. Is what are you hearing? What what is your sense um, as we head towards these elections? Yes, yes, and and uh, thank you, Nana. Like just even the previous guests um, that you you had in this in this segment were wonderful in in really outlining the intersections and the intersectional issues um, that are at stake in this election. Um, you know, but I'll, I'll start by saying just here in California, we've been doing a tremendous amount of work around expanding, protecting, and making more equitable access to abortion care and the full spectrum of reproductive health care services um, through our work on the California Future of Abortion Council, through our work on the ground in our communities um, and within LA County. And so as a result of that effort um, and as a result of the concerted effort to ban abortion care and roll back reproductive rights, abortion is on the ballot um, in California in November as Proposition 1. Um, and I can talk more about that later if, if it comes up, but it, it really seeks to enshrine um, the fundamental right to abortion and contraceptives um, in our state constitution. So this has allowed us to engage our network and engage our communities around this issue. Um, and what is clear is that the vast majority of folks um, support access to abortion care and are appalled and enraged by the cruel attacks on women and birthing people's right to determine their reproductive destiny. You know, so folks are activated. They are enraged and they are engaged, right, by the overturning of Roe v. Wade through the Dobbs decision, right? So this issue is front of mind um, and, and folks are moved, right? It's one that is galvanizing folks to take action. Um, you know, so so yes, so the, the, the 
long answer and long story long, yes, this issue is one that folks that is driving folks to the polls because they're they feel strongly, um, especially on the prog- progressive side around the removal um, or you know or the rescission of the fundamental right to um, to determine right your pregnancy outcome um and so but but you know i, I did want to highlight that as a reproductive justice organization the way that we're thinking about the issue of abortion um and abortion care is that it is not a single issue and we we really do invite folks to think about it um more broadly, you know, we as humans, right, we don't live or lead single issue lives. Shout out to Audre Lord. <laughs> so we shouldn't think about this as a single issue, right? It's a criminal justice issue. It's an economic justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. It's a gender equity issue, among many others, right, Because which intersect to determine the quality of our lives and our abilities to thrive. So this, while yes, it's wonderful and fabulous that access to abortion is energizing folks and is driving them to the polls. I invite folks to really think about the implications of um, of the Dobbs decision, the reversal of Roe, and the concerted attacks across the country um, that are working to repeal uh, the rights of, of folks um, to determine their, their reproductive destinies, right? Like, criminalization of people, Black folks, BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color are are heavily surveilled. And so we'll be, you know, of course, we'll bear the brunt of the criminalization, right, of of pregnancy outcomes. It's It's a gender equity issue, right? It's an economic justice issue where, you know, if if folks aren't able to determine how to have a family, how to have a thriving family, what does that mean for the quality of their lives, right? What does that mean for women and birthing people um, in their in their um, uh, professional endeavors, right? And so so I really do invite folks. Like while it's great that we are galvanized and energized around this issue, and that's what we're hearing on the on the ground, we really try to think expansively about it and and invite folks to really think about all the ways that um, abortion and access to abortion um, impacts our lives at um, various issues. And and I'll stop there. No, thank you. You covered a lot, which is good because you only have a, a, a minute or a couple of minutes <laughs> left. Um, and, and no, you covered a lot in terms of the criminalization. I'm really concerned about that. Um, and also about making sure that this is seen, you know, as the intersectional issue that it is. But in the minute that we've got, want to really talk about what are some concrete things that people can do? We know Lindsey Graham's trying to do something with Congress mm-hmm. to win wood, and we don't know what's happening with these electeds and mm-hmm. whether things are going to push through or not on those levels, whether it's um, federal, you know, or what the administration is doing. Mm-hmm. What can we do? What can we? Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Yes. I you, you know, you 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 dressed and at the top of the show, uh, the news uh, talked about Lindsey Graham's um, uh, new, recently introduced legislation. Right. That he introduced yesterday. This is a federal. This would federally ban abortion after six weeks. Right. I mean, 15 weeks. And so 
this underscores and, and and what we have been doing as reproductive justice organizations, reproductive rights organizations, we've seen the writings on the wall with regard to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And so we've been advocating for various pieces of legislation like the Women's Health Protection Act and, you know, you know, other, and we've introduced other pieces of legislation that have passed the House that seek to um, protect access to abortion care on a federal level. But what, you know, but the the makeup, right, the makeup of the federal government of Congress um, and the Senate really, really imposes a roadblock um, on, on the advancement of these pieces of legislation. And so I, you know, I, I really, really, really do want to underscore the importance of who is in office and the importance of who is, um, who our elected officials are. So one, get out and vote, right? Because we need to hold power in that way. Um, who it remains in office is critical. You know, just I want to encourage folks to donate to abortion funds, right? Um, they are making it such that folks who ordinarily wouldn't be able to travel, right, would would um, have access to the resources to do so, to get the adequate care that they need. You know, if you feel safe, share share your story. That is an empowering, moving um, uh, method of moving folks who don't agree with access to abortion care, right? Like, and knowing that someone they love actually has had an abortion is is Sorry, sorry. I got to cut you off because they're going to cut me off. No, no, I appreciate that. And I'm hoping that folks have taken that in because we do have ways of engaging while we still engage this elected and civic engagement process. So really appreciate you. How do folks get a hold of Black Women for Wellness as we close out? Yes. So check us out on our website. We're on we're on the internet. So www.bwwla.org, bwwla.org. We're on Instagram, bw4w, the bw, the, the number four, wla on Instagram, Black Women for Wellness on Facebook. You know, just type us into Google. You will find us. Also, you can check out Black Women for Wellness. We are out of time. Time flies when we're doing good things and having good conversation. I'd like to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, for inviting me to guest host, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacific Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradio.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy.